Hello, Mage fans. This is Adam Simpson for Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I am joined today by Terry Robinson. And how are you doing, Terry? I have a professional exam in three days, and the fact that I haven't torn out all of my hair yet is a sign that I am either unprepared or facing it with equanimity. Probably the unprepared option. I think you're going to do fine, but I can understand how a person would be nervous about that. I'd probably be doing worse than you are, but uh, hey, you'll have to let us know how that goes in a few weeks. Yep, trying to level up with the syndicate. I'm an actuary by trade, so uh, yep. (laughs) Sphere of entropy, (laughs) and I have a very strong connection. Well, today we are continuing our series, Tomes of Magic. We're going to talk about Outcasts, A Player's Guide to Pariah. Uh, Before we get into it, though, it isn't often that I come across some uh, fantasy or or science fiction that I'm reading, and I think this seems to cover Mage very well. But there was one exception this week. I have been reading some fiction written by Lord Dunsany. He was an Irish member of the nobility in the early 20th century. And uh, he was writing his fantasy short stories from roughly 1905 to, I'd say, 1924 before he turned to other things. And he had a number of short stories that I thought contained the ideas quite well of the High Umbra from Mage. And what I mean by that is there are several short stories where there will be a a character who, because of unusual circumstances, is able to step out of our regular world and step, as he said, over the edge of the world to some other place that was very fantastical, very different from the world we know. And in those scenes, in his stories, uh, the characters will often go to places or meet figures in this fantastical space that are symbolic and represent larger concepts. And so I thought this mapped so well to the High Umbra. So uh, Lord Dunsany, I I would say that's something to look for if if you're looking for a few ideas. And it's in the public domain. So that ish is free. Edward Plunkett, Eighth Baron of Dunsany, was one of the inspirations specifically listed by H.P. Lovecraft. So some of his weird travel stories where people go to a strange land and they encounter an odd people that has particular beliefs and rituals and so on eventually were twisted a bit and inspired H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Not everything he wrote really stands the test of time, but considering it's the early 1900s, I'm going to say it was pretty bang on, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Some of his short stories are certainly not as good as others. I went to sacred-texts dot com and uh, there's a lot of material there in the public domain so worth checking out yep and in terms of weird mage inspiration i have been absolutely devouring invisible sun by monty cook games it is a surrealist game but instead of the normal relationship between reality and the umbra it's kind of flipped the idea there is our world is the false world and one needs to escape to the umbra which is truer which is not an interpretation of mage i would recommend i think it is very important to the game of mage that the earth like this side of the gauntlet, as it were, kind of be anchored as the true reality and everything else be a reflection of it. But just in terms of surrealist ideas and interesting antagonists, I think Teratology, which is the monster manual for that book, the equivalent to Bygone Bestiary, as it were, is one of the best monster manuals I've ever encountered. And I will have interviews in the future, hopefully with some of the creators, if we can get them on, talking about how to add surrealism to your RPGs. As for today's episode, we are talking about Outcasts, A Player's Guide to Pariahs. This came out about the same time as the second edition core book. My book says it came out in 1995, and there's an advertisement in the back for the Mage second edition 
uh, core book. There's also an advertisement for some game you may have heard of, Changeling the Dreaming. I, I don't know if that's ever going to catch on. but Can I share something that I only realized ex post facto after we did the episode on first and second edition? Yeah, I'd like to hear it. It very specifically mentions on page like 43 of the Mage First Edition Core Rulebook, which came out in August of 93, talking about how the Void Engineers were responsible for the Fae making their way back into reality. I didn't realize that at the time, that was two years ahead of almost Changeling coming out. So I like how Mage kind of outlined what would be one of the pivotal events in all of Changeling history. And I didn't quite put the pieces together until I was checking the dates after I put out that show. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, it's fun when the games can have a, a positive uh, effect on each other. Now, Outcasts, A Player's Guide to Pariahs, was put out as a World of Darkness book. So technically, it's not a mage book. There is no mage logo on, on the cover. But this book is here to cover the caitiffs of the vampires, the ronin of the werewolves, and the orphans of mages. And so it is a source book for all three of those games together. We're going to focus on the sections of the book that have to do with mages. Going through this book section by section may not be as helpful. There's a few sections, of course, that simply have nothing to say to mages. But there is an introduction to the book which just touches on the general theme of outcasts loners, rebels, and how they can make for very interesting role-playing and make for very appealing characters for players to consider. Um, Certainly can't disagree with that. And then there's a section for the vampires, a section for the werewolves, and a section for the mages. And then at the end, we get a uh, collection of uh, sample beginning level characters for all three different um, types of, of characters in the world of darkness. It is weird to me that this material was kind of put together in this way. Like when I look over it, the Hollow One information is useful and good and just as interesting as any other collection of information that isn't necessarily about a tradition. So it is curious to me that they collected that stuff together this way. Like I didn't look at any of the Caitiff or or Ronin stuff, but I am curious why this proved to be the form. But I guess eventually in Revised, we wind up getting a, a specific book entirely for the Hollow One and don't the do the hollow ones pop up in the book of crafts at all they are mentioned in orphan survival guide which comes towards the end of second edition so it is interesting to see that in first edition we really didn't get any material on the hollow ones uh, other than you know the brief two pages in the core book with second edition there are two books that give us material on the hollow ones. And then when we get to revise, there's one book that clearly says, this is for the hollow ones. It's kind of interesting because it's the only group in Mage where we have almost more text about what other people think of them than about what they think themselves. So we have the one and a half pages from the first edition rulebook. We get the one and a half pages from the second rulebook once you include art. But every tradition and convention book has had like a paragraph on stereotypes or what they think about it. So up until this point, we have a pretty hearty ratio of what people think about them versus what they think about themselves. And I don't know of another group that really has that. So here, towards the opening of second edition Mage, we finally get uh, some material on the Hollow Ones, and it's in Outcasts: Player's Guide to Pariahs. 
And it almost makes sense that it's been all over the place because how the hollow ones are presented is all over the place. It is a good long time until we get a internally consistent view of what the hollow ones are and what they consider their role to be. In the early first edition core book, we are presented with an image of the hollow ones that certainly changed over time. But at that point, we see a group that is, uh, some people say, kind of flippant or sarcastic. And I think the impression that I got very strongly from reading the first edition core book was that the writers of Mage wanted to present the hollow ones as a group of young orphans who... Uh, themselves are basically teenagers. Uh, they're immature, not because there's some you know failing with them, but just because they're quite young. And uh, they are around other teenagers, basically, or, or young 20s, and they don't have a lot of power. They don't have a lot of influence. They don't have a lot of uh, knowledge of what's going on in, in the uh, mage society. And so I, I think that was done on purpose simply to say this is a young, volatile group with a lot of potential, but not a lot of anything else. And I could be wrong here, but I really got the impression that the people putting together the first edition core book wanted to present this as a group full of possibilities for the players themselves influencing or a storyteller doing what he or she wanted with them in their chronicle. So this was basically the group that could very quickly join the traditions or be wiped out by the technocracy or maybe even join the technocracy or simply disband and scatter to the winds and no longer be a group. It was it was very much in play. And as we get to second edition and where we are now in Outcasts, we see a different view of the Hollow Ones. We see a group that has more uh, mature, experienced members in it. It has a uh, more clear sense of where they think they're going to be in society, what they want. And of course, as the additions march forward into the future, I think the view gets even more uh, solidified and, and organized. I took largely the same impression that you did. To me, reading first edition, asking why there were no old hollow ones would be kind of like asking why there are no 35-year-old members of a Little League team. Like, the idea is you awaken, there isn't a tradition that necessarily finds you, you band together with other people out of strictly mutual convenience and safety and absolutely no shared paradigm necessarily. And then you are eventually picked up by a tradition who says, we will offer you more structure and protection. But the game posits that as time moves on, that the number of people waking as orphans outside of the purview of a particular tradition has increased. So first edition kind of presented the idea that awakening was something that happened preferably under the tutelage of your people, that you were at an Akashic dojo, or you were at a celestial cloister, or you were at a hermetic laboratory or retreat, and people knew that you had kind of magical potential, and they would stress you and train you until you awakened or until you didn't. That spontaneous awakenings were relatively rare. And when they did happen, the the closest tradition would kind of come and pick you up and adopt you. And that you have this modern phenomenon that first edition presents that more and more orphans are staying orphans. And you've hit a critical mass of them. They're forming together into their old group. And some of them are choosing not necessarily to join a tradition. So you have this young upstart group. And systematically, this is reflected by the fact that in first edition, hollow ones didn't need focuses. They could just 
do an effect, which depending on how how much you want to bang on about how time-consuming and cumbersome focuses are, that's a heck of a leg up. So there is also the possible view that Hollow Ones have a more fundamental understanding of magic, which is certainly not something that I feel was carried over into second edition. But yeah, the idea that they're young and upstarts was true because they were young upstarts and not like necessarily young upstarts in the same way that like the virtual adepts were because there are 70-year-old virtual adepts. Roger Thackeray in second edition is in Roger Thackeray's, I think, 70s or something like that. Whereas for the Hollow Ones, it's they seem to suggest that there are no Hollow Ones over the age of like 25. Yeah, I, I remember reading the first edition core book. Uh, they elected uh, a king and a queen to be their leaders and they picked the best looking people. And it's like, well, that's really shallow. And I think the idea was, well, okay, but what do you expect from high school kids? You get yeah. a bunch of high school kids together. What, what do you think is going to turn out? I mean, I have two teenagers in my house right now. And sometimes I hear stuff where I say, no, wait, I can't believe that. And then I have to remind myself, well, you know, they are teenagers. Yeah, but then at the <laughs> so, same time, they seem vastly more aware about global warming and identity issues. So part of me is like, man, they're vastly more ahead of the curve than I am. It's kind of distressing at some points. But yeah, then they talk about who's prettier, and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I am the adult, thank goodness. It it also seemed to be the case that in first edition that the Hollow Ones was just kind of the names that orphans had given to themselves in groups, and there wasn't a coherent worldview to it. Like, there was no paradigm to it because they didn't need focuses, so why would you need a paradigm? I'm guessing here, but I got the impression that the original creators of Mage put Hollow Ones on there to be... Uh, a sort of way of communicating. It's like, these are the people who have nothing and they know it. And they don't want to stay that way, but they're that way right now. And so this is a group in flux. It's a group in play. It could go any direction. Wouldn't that be exciting to explore in your own chronicles? And I feel like there could have been a parallel that if there had been more mage prophecies in the same way in Vampire, the rise of the caitiffs and the coming of the thin bloods, that the rise of orphans is almost viewed as this possible sign of the incoming uh, apocalypse or ascension or Gehenna or whatever you want to call it in your game line. I wonder if there was any thought as to making this parallel to those that existed in Vampire. That is entirely a guess, but I kind of get, it's one of those things where I get a whiff of it. I can't say it's necessarily the case, but it's something I see out of the corner of my eye. Yeah, and I, I have noticed the same thing, just looking at all the books kind of from the beginning of World of Darkness, uh, different games until the revised era of all the different games. There, there seemed to be this this note of uh, with vampires, it's the caitiffs, there's more of them and they're getting more uppity. And then with mage, you've got, uh, there's more and more uh, orphans now and uh, they're more um, self-reliant and outspoken. And also there's more Ronin with, with the werewolves. And this is signifying something big. Oh no, what could it be? And they don't say on purpose because they want you to explore that in your own chronicles. But then as we get closer to, what was it roughly maybe 2004, uh, I, I think they sort of, the different uh, people working on the game line said, yeah, we're working towards the dramatic end uh, cataclysm event of the world of darkness. And yeah, you, we're, we're kind of assuming that we're, we were hinting at that all along. Oh man, when we get to the book Ascension, I may just start crying. Like you and I will have been through so much at that point. <laughs> oh that will probably be a moment to share. That will be our book equivalent of hiking the Appalachian Trail or something like that. But it's also interesting that, so second edition comes in, Hollowed Ones no longer get this mechanical benefit of not requiring focuses. They no longer have the mechanical hindrance of sphere magic being harder to get. So you now have this question of, so what the heck are they? And are they the same thing as orphans or are they not? And this book was like kind of the first one that said, no, 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 no. They're their own group. And like every group,
group on the face of the planet. They claim to be like 14,000 years old that like in the shadows of the pyramids of Egypt, there was a dejected teenager who said, this is lame. And he was the first hollowed one or something like that. That that is perfect. That is priceless. I love that right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but yes, I, I I see your point certainly that in the first edition, the early part of the first edition, they basically said there are some orphans who are not hollow ones, and there are some orphans who call themselves hollow ones, and and so that was basically uh, the idea there. The hollow ones is a grouping of orphans, and after they declare themselves to be hollow ones or start hanging out with other hollow ones, they should still be considered orphans. And now we get to the second edition core book, and it says the hollow ones are not actually orphans, they are a craft. And then you turn to the early pages of the book, and you know, I'm talking about the second edition core book, and it says a craft is a organized group of mages that does not participate in the Ascension War. And, of course, you could split Harrison here and say, well, you know, the Marauders are considered to be in the Ascension War, but a lot of them are so crazy they don't even know there is an Ascension War. So does that count? But uh, just putting that aside for a moment, I think most people would agree that in the Ascension War you have the Nefandi, you have the Marauders, you have the Technocracy, you have the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions, and now we have this term called craft, and that is any mage group that is not one of those four. And this term is reinforced in the book Outcasts. It says that the Hollow Ones are a craft. Now, this is interesting for me as a mage fan because just a few books later in the uh, publication schedule, we get Book of Crafts, which is a great book, and we'll enjoy that when we get to it. But for now, my point is, in Book of Crafts, it gives a new and more detailed definition of the game term, craft. Basically, it says that a craft is a group of mages that does not in uh, take part in the Ascension War, but also they have uh, formalized traditions of recruiting and training members and certain things that they do and certain I's that they dot and T's that they cross. And the Hollow Ones does not fit that definition. And so now, as a mage fan, you have to ask yourself, well, are what are the Hollow Ones now? Are they a bunch of orphans or are they a craft? And now we have a new understanding of craft. And then in late second edition, we get the Orphan Survival Guide, and I haven't uh, read that through that in detail, but there are a few places where they have a Hollow One character saying, everybody calls us orphans, but we don't like being called that or, or something like that. And so now we're back to thinking of Hollow Ones as being orphans who have somewhat organized. And, and the thing that I find interesting regarding that is you give the definition of formal apprenticeship. And they kind of have that, but just not in the magical sense. They seem to have a social apprenticeship where there's kind of a coming out. This is the person I'm taking care of. And once they are ready, they, they get to perform magic or be part of our group after some sort of initiation. But at the same time, it also fails the first criterion of not taking part in the Ascension War. And this book, Outcasts, specifically says that the Hollow Ones think everyone else is doing Ascension wrong. So they have a very particular view of the Ascension War, and they just think that part of it may involve this postmodern skepticism of meta-narratives. So in this multiplicative way, there are several ways in which the Hollow Ones are not a craft. And to, to jump forward one or two books, we get the idea that in 1970, they applied for membership of the traditions. And that's one of those little Easter eggs that pops up in uh, Horizon Stronghold of Hope. So at least within second edition, there 
is an implied idea that the group is cohesive enough to have at least applied for something. Now, the question is, who was that and how many people did they represent or were they doing ironically it is never answered. But yeah, they do in, in multiple ways. They have this weird not tradition, not craft, not just orphans thing. Yeah. So basically, to sum up, it's the hollow ones are hard to define, but then with their attitude, they probably would not like other people defining them. So yeah. maybe that's appropriate after all. <laughs> yeah. And, and they talk about how they were formed in the 1920s during the lost generation, the people who believed that the uh, the international order had kind of broken down after World War One, and traditional structures of power were meaningless. But we don't get the idea necessarily that the hollow ones are, are like guerrilla fighters. Rather than fight the establishment, they have chosen to simply remove themselves from it, which is also an interesting take on that because we have any number of examples from the other traditions of people actively fighting power structures. But in this case, they have simply sidestepped them, which to me makes it both more and less interesting. Like to me, it is hard to run a traditional mage chronicle where you're attacking the Nefandi or you're attacking the technocracy when this group says you're doing Ascension wrong and these power structures are illegitimate, but also I'm going to sidestep them. Like I, I would have problems as an ST coming up with a secondary motivation for a hollow one character as to say why you should go along with the group, which can be fun in small doses, but I think we've all encountered the player that maybe over role played and then a plot fell apart because of it. Yeah, the uh, published material on uh, Hollow Ones, and certainly what we find here in Outcasts, uh, really portrays them as being nonconformists. And so uh, I think a player who, who really dives into that uh, head first may have some friction with a group of tradition mages. And then you compare that with sections that you find in the write-up on the Hollow Ones in the second edition core book and also the first edition core book where it says that Hollow Ones often get along well with tradition mages. They they cooperate. They have uh, friendly relations uh, with each other. Uh, from that, a person would would think, well, it sounds like they, they do take part in the Ascension War occasionally, but perhaps they don't take it too seriously or... Yeah, it is a group that is hard to pin down, hard to define, and the Hollow Ones themselves would probably like it that way. Yeah, which I fully appreciate. But the, the it does leave us in a slightly uncomfortable case of if they are a group and they are somewhat organized, what are the fundamental tenets of their paradigm? And it's kind of interesting because Neville Sinclair, the notional modern founder of the Hollowed Ones, is introduced in this book as a very dashing fellow that is kind of aloof. And later we get information about how this character is much older and much more powerful. We're introduced to Penny Dreadful, and we get these this very potent but unlikable character and this slightly less powerful, much more likable character. And they're trying to explain what they do. And this, this to me is the only real criticism I have of this, like out of the generic world of darkness books that include mage, I think this is a great one. I think it is well-written and well-put-together and well-thought-out. And heck, even the rotes kind of make sense, which uh, my, my criticism of second edition rotes is is well-known. But I don't feel like they did a great job of presenting a unified paradigm or really a lot of information on what a character could use going forward. We get the idea that they work with that which is discarded, and that is what was carried over into 20th edition. But we also get a certain element of them being street mages, and we don't get a lot of information f for that, or at least that was the feeling I I got that if I went to this to play, I would get a lot of philosophy, a little bit light on how I actually cast a darn spell. Yeah, it seems like the book wanted to treat more with the uh, social structure 
of the Hollow Ones, uh, what it was like when they got together and what they said about themselves more than the paradigm, how they learn magic, how they teach each other magic. There was a lot less of that. I thought it was interesting how this book seemed to uh, want to change the reader's perception of the Hollow Ones, which I'm fine with, but there were three characters here who stand out as being atypical Hollow Ones if you're taking a first edition look at Hollow Ones. The first one is Neville Sinclair. He's supposed to be an older, more experienced and, and powerful Hollow One. And so he's he's different in that sense. You have this character, uh, Bryce Grimm. He is uh, rather powerful, but certainly not up there with Neville Sinclair. But what makes him an atypical hollow one is the fact that he doesn't take the hollow one as a, a social movement or, or the goth frame of mind very seriously. He, he says in there that he wears black just because he likes the color black and he wears clothes that are comfortable and he really doesn't care about fashions or, you know, thumbing his nose at, at society, etc. And then, of course, you have the Penny Dreadful character who I know was uh, picked up uh, in later mage fiction, but... I think she did make her first appearance here. And she's the atypical hollow one because she is so nice. She is just the nicest person you could ever hope to meet. There is this notion that the hollow ones are more cynical, self-absorbed, jaded, uh, unfriendly, um, not kind to outsiders. And then you meet this Penny Dreadful character who is just sweet to everyone. She goes out of her way to help out everybody just because that's her personality. And so I, I thought that was kind of fun to see these three atypical hollow ones. And they present two or three other hollow ones that I think they're trying to portray as typical what you would expect hollow ones. But they make briefer uh, appearances in the fiction and their names don't uh, stand out in my memory. Yeah. And later in the book, we also get a section on on storytelling hollow ones. And it is remarkably brief. It talks about how it's a potluck collection of things and that seekings for orphans and child mages can be difficult. And I'm just like, ah. and maybe I'm spoiled by later mage where we got 200 pages on, on seemingly every possible topic, but it felt a little bit thin there. And uh, the section we get on, on Neville Sinclair has Neville like crisscrossing the world, tracing down rare books, which doesn't feel like a terrible hollow one thing to me. So it, it, at least in that regard, the world they put together isn't quite as tight as I would have liked. Like there's there's not a lot you can take here and directly drop in. So like if there had been a, a hollow one chantry or something like that, I feel like that would have been terribly helpful. Yeah, and uh, in terms of new material for the Hollow Ones, uh, in the past they said that the main chantry for the Hollow Ones is the way, I think believe it's called The Way Down, and it's in San Francisco. And in this book, they say, well, it was in San Francisco at one point, but really The Way Down moves from place to place, and that's uh, one of the things that we hollow ones do to make it harder for our enemies to get a hold of us. And th that made sense to me, and it was interesting. And so I thought that was a fun addition to the lore we're building up on the hollow ones. But yeah, in several aspects, uh, this book seemed to be working a little harder than it needed to, to try and defy the stereotype of the hollow ones. I got the impression that this book had a chip on its shoulder, had something to prove. It wanted to send this message out to the reader that, hey, the hollow ones are, are just as good as other mages. They're just as strong as they are. They're just as organized as they are. And uh, I think it's fine to express that. I just got the impression the book was trying a little too hard in that way. 
But overall, I, I did like the book. I certainly would back up Terry's statement that it, it's a good book. And yeah, in terms of magical training, magical learning, it was really, really light. Uh, the only time they touched on it was one part of the uh, in-character fiction they offer, this uh, new character who's just joining the Hollow Ones, and you later find out he's an infiltrator. But he is directed to a uh, used bookstore being run by an orphan who is not a hollow one. And there he sees uh, a couple of hollow ones who are, you know, going through the the shelves and trying to pick out books so that they can further their own magical knowledge. And it gives the impression that I had before that hollow ones are on their own when it comes to learning magic. Uh, there's not a lot of, of training, mentorship, tutelage going on in the hollow ones. There's kind of an attitude of you have to prove that you're strong enough to be here by training yourself in magic, which uh, would certainly make things more difficult for for newer mages. But I, I guess a person could argue that that point of view makes sense for a group like the Hollow Ones. And it kind of brings up an idea that you had brought up out of the show, which is if the Hollow Ones are able to learn magic just as well as anyone else and they don't have to do all the rigmarole of recruitment and sweeping out the chantry and making sure that the, the ritual circle is cleared and making sure that the uh, the unicorns are fed, uh, why is someone going to join a tradition? And, and there are a few answers to that question, but I, I think that is a, a genuinely important question, that if you're going to imply that advancement requires access to resources, how do you justify it with the hollowed ones when very specifically they are pinned out as not having access to those things? And and you get we get a bunch of high dot rotes for the hollow ones, which suggests that there's some hollow one adepts and masters running around. So how did that happen? Yeah, I did notice that. I thought there were the rotes in the book were interesting, uh, certainly for mage games, but they really got my attention for being high powered rotes. Uh, now I could be wrong here, but I. I just got the impression it was another example of the author of the book trying to say to people, hey, the hollow ones are just as powerful as anyone and else. And it makes an interesting argument, which is to say that in the same way that like you and I would talk about how traditional practice differs from the practice done by the allied sleepers, that you could say that the uh, martial arts practice by the Kashiks are more fundamental, that dough is more fundamental than any human martial art. I wonder if you could portray the hollow ones as kind of a meta commentary on that, that all the other traditions think that they have found uh, the true way to amass power. And then you have the hollow ones saying, we do the same amount of work. It just doesn't require as much structure. And in the process of you ritualizing your work, you are getting further away from from true magic, which we hollowed ones have more direct access to, which I, I don't know how comfortable that sits with me. I do like the idea of the postmodern magic of a skepticism of meta narratives, but you run into the very basic problem of if it takes a hermetic two hours to make the glyph that they use to summon a demon and a hollow one can do it with a chapstick on a cocktail napkin, eh, why do we have the hermetic? Like unless it's access to resources. So that is that is something a storyteller I think needs to answer for themselves. I, I don't have a strong feeling. If you want to make it so your hollow ones have a harder time advancing or getting access to mentor and tutor and library and so on, but it's cheaper for them to buy firearms and subterfuge and streetwise and area knowledge, go for it. But I do think it is a consideration a storyteller needs to ask themselves when they're going to have orphan or hollow one characters. 
Yeah, the uh, first edition core book made a kind of, as you put it, hard mode for all orphans, including hollow ones. And that was you have to spend a lot more experience points to get your dots in spheres. And they say, well, this is balanced out by the fact that you don't need uh, foci. But that was a uh, correction that was made in the second edition rules uh, that I think was actually rather uh, needed. And uh, in second edition, the playing field is leveled in terms of uh, game rules for uh, orphans and for tradition and, and convention mages. And that is uh, they spend about the same, uh, well, they spend exactly the same experience points to advance in spheres. It's just that the technocrats and the council mages have an advantage. There's one sphere where they need to spend a little bit less experience uh, to advance in that one sphere. But the other eight spheres, uh, orphans and uh, other mages do it the same. I thought that was better because in my mind, the player characters are like the main character of a movie or a novel. The reason they're the main character is because they're different from the average folks. They're more interesting. So let's focus our attention on them. And so I, I don't agree with this sort of uh, games mechanics hard mode for orphans. I think that uh, if a player makes an orphan and they want you know, during character creation, they take their freebie points and they spend it on backgrounds. Like, I have a library and a mentor and I'm a member of a chantry and, and all this kind of stuff. I think it's fine for the storyteller to say, okay, you're different from most orphans. That If that's the character you want to make, that's fine. If you have a tradition mage who spends no background points on, you know, mentor library, etc., then they're going to be unusual in terms of the traditions. But, you know, player characters can can be any way that they want to be. It does make me curious, though, what the cost should be for not having to use a focus. So you're paying 10x per dot as opposed to 7 or 8x, but you don't have to use a focus. But at the same time, in second edition, we're dropping focuses as one advances, one arete. So out the door, if you have an arete three, there's already two spheres that you don't need to use focuses for. So I, I am curious that if one wanted to posit that as a rule, what the appropriate rate should be. And you know what? I don't have an answer to that one. Well, I actually wanted to go back to the point that you raised about how are the resources necessary to advance in magic or is it really not? I think in first edition, that was more the assumption of the people writing for Mage and, and putting out the books. And that was if you have better access to the resources, you will advance in magic. And so the orphans and the hollow ones were sort of the, the have-nots. They were the disadvantaged mages. And I think think that they wanted to leave the door open to a storyteller working that into a chronicle as a, perhaps a commentary on how mage society is more like sleeper society than mages want to admit. But as we get into second edition, that notion changes. There's uh, seems to be more of a support for the the loners, the rebels, and the outcasts, and, and less of a desire to look down on them. And so you have this idea that is expressed in, in many of the books where the orphans will be saying to the established mages, uh, you guys think you need all those resources to advance, but we orphans, why? We're proof that you can work it out yourself. We just do it on our own. And storytellers need to figure that out on their own. I see sort of a duality here, and uh, Terry was seeing it more as a gradient where you can sit anywhere in between those two that you like. I see it as more of a duality because I see on the one hand this idea that the tradition mages 
have advantages that the orphans don't. And so the orphans are like trying to get in to the, the in-group, but they, they can't make it in. And so there's this disparity and mage society is, is more interesting to portray in Chronicles because of that. But on the other hand, you have a, a, what could be a very different idea, and that is that the resources really aren't necessary to advance in magic. Uh, an orphan really can advance at the same rate uh, without a mentor in a large library. And this is some sort of a, an insight that the orphans have that the traditions uh, don't have or, or perhaps lost long ago. And so this this seems to be something that could be expressed better with an orphan uh, chronicle where all the player characters of hollow ones or orphans or, or something similar and they have a hard time with the establishment mages and they have a way of you know, communicating to them slowly over time hey you guys are all bound up in traditions that are outmoded and outdated and you need to be more open-minded and it's kind of interesting because systematically there's a divide between first and second edition where in first edition you had study points you could advance a sphere by paying up to half of its cost in study points which you accumulated yes. based on access to library and mentor and research and instruction. And in second edition, those backgrounds still exist, but the but mechanism, yes, the mechanism fundamentally changed where you rolled your library when learning a new knowledge or sphere, and that would save you experience points. It was not like a second track, which I understand mechanically why you would want to do that, but the benefit of having access to library, it no longer cuts the study time in half, but might reduce it by, by a handful of percent, which is considerable considering the rate at which people would accumulate experience points and the fact that mage, that your fifth dot costs significantly more than your second dot, which the more time I spend STing, the less I like that. But again, just an, just a personal opinion. I got the impression uh, reading the material both in Outcasts and the material on uh, Hollow Ones uh, before this that the Hollow Ones are a more fractious group than any of the traditions are. They they have more of a multiplicity of opinions and goals and outlooks. I, I was commenting to Terry how the Hollow Ones can't seem to decide if they've refused to join the traditions because they disdain them or if they're upset <laughs> the traditions won't let them join. Yes. And it's like, well, which is it, folks? And and that's the thing. It's, it's both. There are Hollow Ones who say, I would never join the traditions. And then there are also Hollow Ones who say, hey, I, I wish we could join the traditions, but they won't let us join. And and, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different opinions. And so uh, as a storyteller, if I'm depicting to my players a group of Hollow Ones, I would want to express that. I would want to have hollow ones disagreeing with each other it's like oh i wish we could be in the traditions no we're better off outside of the traditions screw those guys and and so it's like yeah th this is a group of mages that even though they have one banner out front and they have one sort of community i guess you could say they are very divided on where they want to go how they want to do it and how they want to conduct their lives and it's one of those cases where is it you don't want to go to the party because you weren't invited or you don't want to go to the party because you hate the party. And and as you said, yeah, it seems like it could be either one of those. It is interesting to me to see uh, the, the waves of solidification and, and generalization that the Hollow Ones go through in terms of how coherent or discoherent they are. And it is also interesting to me in that... I don't know about you, but all the traditions seem somewhat global. We don't have a notion, at least in second edition, that they are that they are somewhat global. That you don't have to be from East Asia to be an Akashic, and you don't need to be from Greece or the Indian subcontinent to be a member of the Euthanatoi. Like 
it did kind of feel to me like the hollow ones were a North America bi-coastal group. And I don't know if that was intended, but the more I think about it, the more like I could certainly see them not being admitted as a tradition because they lack that universality. Yeah, I got the impression that they were a phenomenon of North America and Western Europe. And perhaps maybe some Eastern Europe, but I mean, you get the idea. Yeah, uh, I get the impression that if you were to talk to the hollow ones who know more about what's going on, and you said, "Hey, what about your East Asia connections?" They'd probably say, "Well, yeah, we don't, we don't really yeah. have a lot over there." <laughs> or, what about what about the African? What about the South American? How about Australia or something? And they'd be like, "Well, yeah, yeah we don't have a lot of." Folks we're too on the cool for eighty-five percent of humanity. So take <laughs> yeah, <laughs> take perhaps, that several billion that people. Would be your answer. <laughs> so yeah, they they do seem to be a more uh, you might a regionally focused group and uh, is that because they they follow the gothic subculture that was uh, hammered out in, in 1993 or not uh, I guess that's that's uh, open to perception and of course we'll probably see a, a quite different view of them as we move forward into revised edition and mage 20 but but for now let's just look at second edition I'm also terribly curious that say in m20 continuity the hollow ones were added as a tradition and we had 10 traditions. Who would be the new Hollow Ones? Uh, Matt Webb made a comment that the each tradition takes what was thrown away or ignored by the previous group and makes it their own. So the Hollow Ones have organized around this idea of postmodern magic. What would the 11th tradition then look like? What would the group that the Hollow Ones look and say, look at these young upstarts? Like if the Hollow Ones were to over-solidify and become more hierarchical as traditions tend to do over time. I'm terribly curious to see what they would view as the young upstarts. And I wonder if it would be like radical climate activists, not necessarily radical in the sense of like burning buses or anything like that, but but highly outspoken political activists or, or some other movement that is associated with youth, youth subculture. I just imagine they would be using the word yeet a lot, but that's just a guess. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment. I, I actually had thought about that, but now that you mention it, uh, that would probably be an interesting thing to explore in, in a Mage Chronicle. The Hollow Ones are not the underdogs anymore. Who is now, and what, and how do the Hollow Ones react to that? I, I think that could be gist for a, a lot of good uh, role-playing sessions. Yeah. Uh, but before we move on, there is one complaint that I have <laughs> with how the Hollow Ones were handled and how Mage was put together. The Hollow Ones are mentioned as an orphan group, and for a long time, they are the only orphan group that we hear about in any published mage materials. It is not until towards the end of second edition and the publication of Orphan Survival Guide that we get names and, and identities and, and information on other orphan groups, at which point I was saying, oh, please, thank you, it's about time. Up until the end of second edition, before that time, basically if you've got an orphan who says, well, I, I want to find some other orphans, then the storyteller is going to say to that player, well, I hope you like wearing black, and I hope you're awfully <laughs> hip, because otherwise you are out of luck, my friend. The hollow ones are it. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd certainly have to roll your own or come up with your own. And and coming up with a, a an orphan paradigm, it's weird for me, because you figure the more time I spend with mage, the easier that would become. But for me, it's one of those things where you have a fundamental way in which the universe works, that the Hermetics believe that it is a combination of self-discipline and esoteric knowledge that allows you to affect change or the verbena observation of cycles or, or what have you. Like, I have a hard time coming up with 
areas of, let's say, paradigm real estate that aren't already taken from another group. So yeah. if, you, if you're a death mage and it's slightly inflected and you believe in serving as a psychopomp to help people in your neighborhood pass on, the difference between that and a uh, euthanatos mage is just kind of whether or not you're part of the organization. So yeah, I'm glad mm-hmm. that in Orphan Survival Guide, we finally get other orphan groups that may be taking up uh, ocean that is otherwise unoccupied or land that is otherwise unclaimed. I, I would certainly have to ask a player, okay, so who are your friends? Write them down for me. Save me this work. Yeah, the orphan group uh, they, um, of the Hollow Ones, they seemed so transient, so uh, you know, subject to change in, in the early part of first edition that uh, two years later we had second edition and we still have the Hollow Ones and they're in the same place. And I thought, okay, well, yeah, it's only two years later. I guess this sort of makes sense. But I, I was always, as a mage fan and a, and a customer, you know, buying and reading the books, I just... In the back of my mind, I just expected something about the Hollow Ones to change. And then Revised came in in 2000, and you know the Hollow Ones are you know they're more organized and they're more with it, but they're still very much the Hollow Ones. I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess these guys are just a permanent fixture of the yep. game now, and I guess they're just not going to change. And it was in Mage 20 that they finally had their big change, but I guess we'll talk about that in the future. Yep. 2024 or whenever we wind up getting to it. (laughs) So I I think that exhausts most of my thoughts about the book itself. I think it was well-written. The other sections aren't terribly useful to me, but if I had a second edition hollow one, I I think this is kind of your best go-to. I would personally recommend that a storyteller just use the revised book. This is one of the few traditions where I just say, just go to revised. There are a lot of other traditions where I'm like, no, second edition may make more sense or what have you. But this is a case where, where that, if you're looking for a buy recommendation and you don't care about uh, the caitiff and you don't care about Ronan, there is good material in this, but for the same price, you can get an entire book on just the hollow ones. Yeah, as, as a recommendation, I, w- I would second that. If you're looking for um, some good, coherent material on Hollow Ones, either from the point of view of a storyteller or a player, I think that the revised edition book on the Hollow Ones is going to give you uh, some, some great material. But certainly the Outcast book, I think, although it, it seems to have a chip on its shoulder, the, the single author, James Moore, seemed, seems like he kind of had a point to prove. But even setting that aside... I think the book was good. I think there's some good material here. I think it uh, would help uh, out a person and and not just restricting itself to second edition. I I think it's uh, worth reading through. But if you want that one book that's going to help you with the hollow ones, I think revised edition has some nice material for you. So uh, moving on, I just wanted to wrap up with uh, some uh, orphan adventure ideas uh, that I've been thinking about this week. Uh, Number one, shaking up the hollow ones. If you have one player in the group who is a hollow one, Make them become influential. After meeting a talked-about archmage of the traditions or visiting an old, powerful chantry, word gets around. A rumor starts among the Hollow Ones that the player has allies and influence in the Council of Nine. Regardless what the player says, the rumor persists. Other Hollow Ones approach the player with concerns, complaints, etc. Different NPCs argue the future of the Hollow Ones with the player and push the player to decide where she thinks the group should go. Eventually, even council representatives recognize the player as speaking for the hollow ones. Then sit back and watch where the player takes the hollow ones. Let the group change in your chronicle. Number two, a cabal of orphans stumbles across clues that lead them to Meister Heidelman's sanctum in the digital web. Among mages, Meister Heidelman was a powerful hermetic who boasted of his amazing library. No one knew he practiced technomagic. He was murdered mysteriously years ago in a tradition chantry. The players find the library consists of Heidelman's journal, 
a handwritten tome that is indecipherable, and basic study material from each of the nine traditions. The journal tells of Heidelman leaving the Order of Hermes because he became powerful, because he thought every tradition has tunnel vision. Council mages and technocrats want Heidelman's library very badly. The players learn that Heidelman's assassin is now stalking them. Number three, Neville Sinclair, influential Hollow One, is worried about an infiltrator among the Hollow Ones in a certain city and has asked a contact in the Council of Nine for help. The players are sent to impersonate Hollow Ones and work their way into the cliques of the city. Neville's information will help the players establish themselves. The players must learn quickly about Hollow One culture and urban culture at the same time as they work discreetly to uncover the true infiltrator. When the players discover the infiltrator is actually a legit Hollow One with compromising info on Neville's past, things get complicated. For a twist, you could say there was no infiltrator, and that it was all a plan to get tradition mages to see firsthand that hollow ones are decent folks. As Terry has said, sometimes the real ascension is the friends we make along the way. <laughs> yep, that's the two takeaways I want people, uh, people to take. <laughs> ascension are the friends we made along the way. Also, the ability to cooperate with other people is the sign that you're the bad guy, as proven by the Nefandi and the technocrats. <laughs> Okay, well, that about wraps it up for me. I would just want to remind everyone that you can contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with questions, comments, or feedback. We always like to hear from you, regardless what you have to say. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn. Follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. Uh, this episode of Mage the Podcast was executively produced by Ira Grace. If you would like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show notes at magethepodcast.com. That is our website where we have all of our episodes available for you to listen to and some other material besides. Well, on that note, I believe we've come to the end of another episode of Mage the Podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Bye. <laughs>